0: The following article is from the California Freemason magazine, July-August 2019 edition, and is part of the Masonic Education Series. Titled, Our Inverted World. What an Overlooked Passage Tells Us About Masonry's Relationship to the World Around Us. Written by John L. Cooper III, Past Grand Master of Masons, California. As a general rule, Freemasonry tends to be concerned with internal matters, spiritual and educational practices within oneself, and ritual practiced within the four windowless walls of the Lodge. But the truth is that if we discount Masonry's connection to the wider world, we overlook some of its most significant teachings. This is perhaps nowhere more relevant than in the Monitorial Lecture of the Apprentice Degree, which includes the following passage. The form of a Lodge is oblong. It extends from east to west and from north to south and it is said to be thus extensive to denote the universality of Masonry and to teach us that a Mason's charity should be equally extensive for in every country and in every clime are Masons to be found. Hearing this paragraph as it is delivered in the degree lecture our minds immediately jump to the consequences of the subject that as Masons our charity should be unlimited as Freemasonry is found all over the world. Both of these concepts are important but they tend to obscure the first part of the passage regarding the form of the Masonic Lodge. This has important implications. The idea that the boundaries of a lodge extend geographically from east to west and from north to south is a metaphor. We're not talking about the physical building where a lodge meets, nor are we talking about its jurisdiction, although lodges do exist within the boundaries of a Grand Lodge, which for the most part operate within the confines of a state or country. Rather, we're exploring the workshop of Freemasonry, which covers the entire globe. Some old rituals added to this concept by noting that the height of the lodge was as great as the vault of heaven and as deep as the center of the earth. In other words, Freemasonry is without boundaries or limits. It is truly universal. But it's more than that, somehow. The metaphor implies that Freemasonry incorporates both the world of nature and the works of man. The Fellowcraft degree reiterates that Freemasonry finds its roots in operative Masonry through the creation of temporal structures of value to humanity, and in quotes, by operative Masonry we allude to a proper application of the useful rules of architecture, whence a structure will derive figure, strength, and beauty, and from which will result a due proportion and just correspondence in all its parts. It furnishes us with dwellings and convenient shelters from the vicissitudes and inclemencies of the seasons. End quote. But speculative masonry, the kind that we now practice, has an even broader purpose. We are to build a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This building takes place in a lodge whose walls extend endlessly from east to west and from north to south. This lodge includes all of nature and by implication, all of humanity. A logical extension of this understanding of Freemasonry is that we are being told to care for the world of nature around us, using its resources rightly and justly, and that we are to care also about all those who live on what has been termed our island home. That is a secret embedded in the simple definition of a lodge as oblong, a rectangle which actually has no limits. And just as the metaphorical lodge has no real limits, we are told that neither should we as Freemasons. Our charity, by which we mean our love, should also not be limited. The lecture reminds us that there are no limits to how much we should care about the world and all therein. The following article is from the September-October 2019 California Freemason magazine and is from the Masonic Education series, titled Secrets of the Cloth long prohibited as too revealing lodges are rediscovering wall charts by john l cooper III, Past past grandmaster of masons in california there's a curious and in many cases beautiful relic in many of our lodge closets that some members have begun pulling out lately and dusting off wall charts wall charts have a long and colorful history within the craft and one that only lately is being revived in california once used to help guide and illustrate degree lectures These symbolic guides were at one time banned by Grand Lodge for revealing too much about the secret degrees. That prohibition, thankfully, is now in the past, and interest in these historic artifacts is rising throughout the state. As Masonic degrees developed during the first part of the 18th century, it became a custom for a past master of the Lodge to deliver a lecture on the symbolism of the degree. These talks were given extemporaneously although it's likely that the speaker used a memorized or written outline. Over time, these outlines were standardized into the narrative lectures we use today. The wall charts grew out of those earliest outlines. Degrees in those days were often conducted in a dining room at an inn, with tables arranged in a horseshoe, leaving a space in the center of the room for the lecturer to deliver his talk. The titler would draw a sketch on the floor with black charcoal and white chalk and sometimes fill in those outlines with a fine-powdered clay. These days, one of our lectures makes a reference to chalk, charcoal, and clay. At the end of the lecture, these secrets were preserved by having an apprentice use a mop to obliterate the drawings. Over time, lodges found a way to preserve those sketches by drawing on the underside of the tops of tables in the lodge. These trestle boards, as they were called, could be reused and hidden between meetings. Freemasons still use the term trestle board, but nowadays it refers to the lodge publication. From there, floor cloths and eventually wall charts were born. Rather than drawing on a wooden tabletop, the symbols were painted on a piece of cloth, a carpet, and placed on the ground in place of the old Tyler sketches. These floor cloths, many of which were quite beautiful, were sometimes hung on walls during the degree ceremony. Others painted the symbols onto wooden panels, called tracing boards. Today that history is still in evidence in California, as we continue to use a floor cloth in the fellowcraft degree. Many lodges still have wall charts descended from the original floor cloths that were at one time hung on the wall of the lodge. Elsewhere, this heritage remains strong. European lodges continue to use tracing boards in their ritual, and some of them are quite beautiful, particularly the so-called Harris boards designed by British artist John Harris in the early 19th century. The wall chart, however, is a peculiarly American artifact. While they were originally hand-painted, by the early 19th century, they were being sold by commercial fraternal supply houses, and thus became standardized. Because it was expensive to print a wall chart in color, most of them were black and white. Candidates had to sit near enough to these charts to see the symbols. In fact, we still follow the practice of a candidate being seated near the front of the lodge for lectures. There was a further development of these wall charts in America, which did not happen in Europe. At the end of the 19th century, these symbols started being painted onto glass slides and projected onto a wall using a kerosene lantern. Most of these slides were hand-colored, and some lodges still have a collection of these slides. They were eventually superseded by 35mm slides and electric projectors, and later laptops and digital projectors. Such wall charts harken back to the early days of the fraternity, when lectures were given from memory, and the sketches served as a way of explaining important Masonic symbology. Today, They are reminders of our heritage and give particular meaning to the idea that a picture is worth a thousand words. The following article is from the November-December 2019 California Freemason magazine as part of their Masonic Education series. It's titled The Sun, the Moon, and the Master, How the Lesser Lights of the Lodge Provide an Anchor for Brotherhood by John L. Cooper III, past Grand Master of Masons, California. The oldest continuously published periodical in North America is The Farmer's Almanac, which began appearing in 1792. The 2019 edition still advises about which plants should be planted at which phases of the moon. Root crops, for instance, are said to grow best when planted close to the full moon. There may be some truth behind this folk wisdom. We all know the moon's gravitational field exerts its pull on the tides. The moon has, symbolically at least, exerted its pull on masonry, too. My own blue lodge, Harmony No. 164 in Sierra City, is a so-called lunar lodge, which sets its meeting dates by the full moon. Why? Because when Harmony first formed in 1861, members rode on horseback to lodge meetings, often over long distances, and doing so was easier under a full moon. Since the lunar calendar doesn't match our standard one, moonlight lodges held 13 meetings per year. Ironically enough, Harmony today is both a moonlight and a daylight lodge, as it now meets during the afternoon for the convenience of its members, many of whom travel quite far to attend. How things change. There are now only two lunar lodges left in California, Harmony and its gold country cousin Mariposa Lodge No. 24, which are connected by Highway 49. But in another sense, all Masonic lodges are governed by the moon, a fact we're reminded of every time they're opened. Consider the portion of a 1730 ritual published in England. Question. Have you any lights in your lodge? Answer. Yes. Three. Question. What do they represent? Answer. Sun, moon, and master mason. N.B. These lights are three large candles placed on high candlesticks. Question. Why so? A. Sun to rule the day, moon the night, and master mason his lodge. Through the years, these references have puzzled Masons. Why do these three candles represent the sun, moon, and Master Mason? In some places, the ritual has been changed so the third candle represents the Master of the Lodge, a concession to the fact that in the past, Lodges had only two degrees and the Master Mason was the presiding officer of the Lodge. These candles were originally located near the Master and Warden stations in the east, west, and south but over time they migrated to the altar so they would illuminate the holy book and square encompass the so-called greater lights that lay upon it. The candles then became the lesser lights. Today, no lodge is complete without both the greater and lesser lights. Early Masonic scholars noted the cosmic regularity of the sun and moon and expected the lodge to be governed by the master with equal consistency. Thus, masons are governed during the day by the sun, at night by the moon, and in lodge by the master. The following article is from the April-May 2013 California Freemason magazine, and is part of their Masonic education series. This article is titled, Masonic Charity, A Historical Perspective. The fraternal commitment to relief has defined the institution of Freemasonry, written by John L. Cooper III. At this time, he was the deputy grandmaster. He is now a past grandmaster. Each year, the United Grand Lodge of England selects a prominent Mason to be the Prestonian lecturer for the year, fulfilling the wishes of William Preston, the author of our Masonic Ritual Lectures, who left money in his estate for some well-informed Mason to deliver annually a lecture on the first, second, or third degree of the Order of Masonry according to the system practiced in the Lodge of Antiquity during his mastership. In 1993, the Prestonian lecturer was Brother John Hamill, a prominent Masonic scholar, who chose as his topic Masonic charity. Brother Hamill made several important observations in his lecture and I want to share some of them with you. Our early brethren understood relief to mean the alleviating of the suffering of a brother or the dependence of a deceased brother by giving money or sustenance until circumstances improved. In modern times we see relief in its wider context of charity. That is, not simply providing money to relieve distress, but actually caring and giving of our time and talents in the service of our communities as a whole, and not just to our brethren and their dependents. Brother Hamill reminds us that one of the earliest tasks undertaken by the new Grand Lodge in 1717 was the creation of a central charity fund for use by the lodges. In 1727, the first charity fund beyond that of an individual lodge was created. A committee was established to dispense charity from this fund, and its treasurer was named Grand Treasurer, the first use of this title. The committee received requests for assistance and could grant up to five guineas without a vote of Grand Lodge for the relief of a distressed brother, his wife, widow, or orphans. This was a generous gift for those in need. Economic historians have painted a bleak picture of poverty in 18th century England. The bottom 20% of the population were deemed the very poor, and their lives were the ones of daily misery. Local churches or parishes were responsible for poor relief, and only the old and disabled were entitled. Children whose parents were too poor to support them were sent to work for free as apprentices. A law of 1697 required anyone receiving public assistance to wear a blue or red P for pauper on their clothes. Those who were able to work but could not find work were whipped for refusing to take non-existent jobs. It is estimated that during the first half of the 18th century, half the population lived at the subsistence level, barely able to find enough money to stay alive. It is against this background that the earliest Masonic charity needs to be seen. Masons in the 18th century had inherited the practice of helping their most needy members from the operative stonemason days of the Middle Ages, By the time the Charity Committee had come into existence in 1727, the nature of charity had changed from simply taking care of a brother and his family on a building site to the actual giving of money to help out those in need. And such charity was generous by the standards of the day. Freemasons did not treat their less fortunate brethren as social outcasts, they did not beat a member who could not find work to support his family, they did not sell the children of the member of the lodge to work almost as slave labor for an unscrupulous employer and they did not require those who were recipients of Masonic charity to wear a letter designating them as paupers. What Masonic charity did was to treat those less fortunate as friends and brothers, an unheard of idea in the 18th century. Brother Hamill points out in his Prestonian lecture that Masonic charity is so important that it can almost be considered a landmark. If we define a landmark as being something in Freemasonry which, if it were removed, Its removal would materially alter the essence of our institution, then charity is certainly a landmark. Without the second of its three grand principles, Freemasonry would be a different organization. The practice of charity may truly be said to be a landmark, for for if it were removed from Freemasonry, its removal would materially alter the very nature of our institution. The words of William Preston are still heard by every entered apprentice as he begins his journey into Freemasonry. To relieve the distressed is a duty incumbent on all men, but particularly on masons, who are linked together by an indissoluble chain of sincere affection. To soothe the unhappy, to sympathize with their misfortunes, to compassionate their miseries, and to restore peace to their troubled minds is the great aim we have in view. On this basis we form our friendships and establish our connections.